You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. So today, we're going to be continuing our conversations about the image of God. And today, I'm doing a lesson called Created for Connection. And never have I been more insecure in presenting a lesson than I am today. (laughs) So I'm going to uh, part, because I don't like teaching things where I feel like my, my thoughts are still formulating. Like, I don't feel completely settled about it. We're going to, like, kind of be in this conversation together, okay? Uh, this isn't, don't look at this as, like, this is a declaration from on high. Uh, this is, like, okay, here's where I am in this journey. Here's some of, the, some of the questions I'm starting to ask. Here's some things I'm starting to question. And at the beginning of the year, when I sat down and I made the list of all of the topics that I wanted to cover, um, I knew I wanted to do something on technology, but I didn't, you know, the Lord has this way of working with me over time on these lessons. And it's really, when I sit down at the beginning of the year and I kind of outline things, I know that the Lord's going to teach me throughout the year on these, these matters. And so he and I are always in a conversation as I'm developing these lessons. And so I didn't really know at the beginning of the year what this lesson was going to look like. And even last night, Abby and I were hanging out and I said, I'm up for any distraction to procrastinate even longer on this lesson. What do you want to do? Let's go to Chick-fil-A. That sounds good. <laughs> do you have any air errands you need to run, child? Uh, I, this is how I, much I was, I was struggling with this. Okay, so just to kind of set up some context. A couple of the questions that have been rolling around in my mind since our conversation on transhumanism a couple of weeks ago is the, the question our culture is asking is, can technology make us even more human? Can it extend our life? Can it uh, increase our, our um, ability to evolve? That, these are, for those of you who are here for our conversation on transhumanism, very provocative subject, right? The, but another question is, is technology actually making us less human in some way? is another kind of the flip side of that. And um, so I wanted to always, I always like to start with the Christian worldview. You know, what do we as Christians think to set the context? And in our verse here about being created in the image of God, the human beings were created in the image of God, both male and female, he created them. And we've been saying all year about, we've been exploring the, various applications of humans having intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. In other words, there's something about being human that gives us value. And we've been applying this in all of these different ways throughout the year. And thinking and considering about ways that we can advocate for the image of God, both inside the church and within our culture. Um, Now, a, a very historic part of the image of God concept theologically is the idea of connection. That we were created for connection as human beings. And that uh, when we see in Genesis chapter two, we see the, the creation of the man and the woman. And it says in verse 18, The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
But what's interesting about this is that then the author proceeds to tell us about all of the, the things that were not suitable. The animals were not a suitable partner for him. Um, it says in verse, at the end of verse 20, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So even though God had made all of these cre- wonderful and beautiful creatures, none of them was a suitable helper. And we've talked before about this word helper, um, ezer, which is some, something that is like him, and it is a co-warrior. It is somebody that will help Adam rule and reign the earth and be able to carry out the mandate that the Lord God gave him um, back in chapter 1 that they be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over all creation. So he needed this this ezer, this suitable helper. And we have this tendency in in our churchy culture to think of a helper as like the second banana. I call it the backup singers, right? That, 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 that the Adam's out in front and the, and the woman is the backup singers, right? She's the one making the food. Are you with me? Yeah. Yeah. But that is not the picture that is here in Genesis 1 and 2. The picture is that these two people are co-ruling and reigning the earth together and that they are a pair that complement each other and they are mutual by design and that there is something about being a human that we were not created for isolation. We were created for community. Okay, so from the creation, humans were created for connection to co-rule the earth. That is our true calling and destiny as human beings. But then what happens? The fall, right? And we turn the page in Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall and we see the curse. For example, in verse 16... To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So here we have the introduction of the difficult relationship between the man and the woman that one is going to be vying for control over the other. And then the other one tries to get control over the other one. And it's this constant back and forth. And we talked earlier in the year about how we have broken fellowship with one another in the human realm, both between men and women. But even more broadly, we see in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, right? It's not just between men and women. The curse affects all humanity. You have these two brothers, and, and is, I mean, talk about dysfunctional family relationships. Right, this is dysfunction junction right here because... That we have this situation where the brothers are engaged in a, a situation of jealousy almost for God's attention. And one brother kills the other brother. So we see immediately how pervasive the fall is going to be and how broken our relationships truly become. So fellowship is broken at the fall. This is all review between humans and God between men and women, and I think more broadly, we see this throughout scripture of all human relationships. All of us fall in Adam. But then we as redeemed people, 
we have a revelation to live differently. And I think that especially pertinent today is Deuteronomy chapter 6. We've been mostly looking at New Testament passages when we've been talking about the redemption part of our model. But I thought it would be fun today to look at an, an Old Testament passage so you can see that the, the, the commands in the Levitical law were instructions for God's people to how to act, how to be different than the fall, how to begin to counteract the curse. So we have Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God and live as long as you live by keeping all the decrees and commands that I give you and that you may enjoy a long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord the God of your fathers promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. This is a wonderful summary of the, the redemptive culture that God wanted to build among the Israelites. That their identity would be about who they are and their relationship with the Most High God. And that their primary responsibility was then to teach and train these child, their children about these things. And then in the glorified state, we look forward in the book of Revelation. We look forward to the end where we will be restored. We will be truly restored because we will live forever in the glorified state. I think it's interesting in chapter 21, it talks about how there was no temple in the city. Because the Lord, all, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on, shine on it, for the glory of God gives light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the, little, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then drop down a few verses, chapter 22, verse 4. They will see face to face. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the vision of the community that we have been created for. 
We have not been, like our ideal is not isolation. Our ideal is community. That's what we were designed from the beginning to do. And that is our eternal destination. And isn't it interesting how the glorified state is actually different than Eden? Because in Eden, there was the potential for evil to come in. But in the glorified state, there's no potential, right? And so it's a very important difference. We're not trying to go back to Eden. Eden is not the ideal. Eden, I think, is a type or a shadow of what's to come in the glorified state. But the glorified state is even better because it's permanent. There's no possibility of sin or deceit or shame. And so what we see in the glorified state is that we will be face to face. There's no more need for a temple or priests. We have face to face fellowship. So what was lost at the fall will be restored in the glorified state. Okay, this is the huge narrative of scripture. But what I want you to see today is that we have been created for fellowship. We have been create. We will have eternal fellowship in the glorified state between us and God, between men and women, and between all human relationships. And we have been created for community. Okay, so now let's re- begin to reflect what our culture is telling us and doing and programming in us when it comes to technology. This is where, <laughs> for me, things start becoming undone. Because this is all very beautiful. It's a very beautiful vision, isn't it? But we live in a fallen world. I think that for me, uh, the greatest struggle I have as a parent is technology. The greatest, I think that my children's, what I put in the parentheses there, overuse of phones, video games, social media, is the most difficult parenting issue that I face. And my generation is facing this for the first time. Like, we can't go ask our parents, well, how did you deal with this? Because when I was in high school, what I did was I would come home from school and I would talk on the phone, right, yeah. for hours. And then my mother would finally say, enough already, you know. And, but I've noticed that my children do not talk on the phone. They will do almost anything to avoid having a conversation face-to-face. Like, there was some value in me being a little afraid of calling my friend's house because her father might answer. And I had to, I had to know how to have a polite enough conversation with the father to say, um, yes, this is so-and-so. Um, uh, would, it, would it be okay if I could talk to so-and-so on the phone, right? I had to know, have enough social skills that I knew how to maneuver talking to my friend's parents in a polite way. I've noticed that my children do not have these skills. And I don't think I'm alone in this struggle. And um, as I talk to all my friends that are my age and have children about my age, especially children that were born in about Emily's age, around 99, right before 9-11, those are the kids that are the most impacted by this. And um, here's just some averages of hours that are spent on screens. Ages three to four, three hours a day spent on screens. Seven hours a day for teenagers. And there's an actual mental illness now 
uh, that you can, that has a name that you can be diagnosed with and they have like rehab clinics in Asia in particular where you go check in and you have to go through detox just like you would for meth or alcohol or something else. Is to your technology causing family conflicts? Teens and parents say they argue. Like one of the most common arguments teenagers have with their parents these days is about their use of technology. Parents say they argue, 36% of parents say they argue on a daily basis with their teenager about their technology. 21% say never, I don't know where those people live. <laughs> I don't know if they're Amish, I don't know what's happening there. They, or they don't care, okay. They just, they just let them. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So some critical questions I want you to think about as we go through this, and I hope that I leave you with this week, is to think about how is technology impacting my most important, my most valued relationships? To, to step back and think about that. Is technology bringing us closer? Is it actually bringing us closer? Not hypothetically closer. Is it actually bringing us closer or is it separating me from my family and friends? Am I controlling the technology or is it controlling me or my children? To me, these are the three critical questions that I came up with in the last several weeks as I've been working on this lesson. And to me, these are, these are some like, uh, when I, the more I've thought about these, it's like so convicting and disturbing and like all at once. To really like have a come to Jesus moment about the reality of it. And so, I don't know, maybe just put a circle or a star around that slide to think about those questions, because to me, those are the most critical questions to think about. So preteen, here's just a couple of very common, not all girls and boys, but very common when you start looking for patterns in the literature. Preteen or teenage girls, they were, parents fight with them about getting off their phones, but the phones are making them miserable because it's a, it's a constant popularity contest about how many likes you're getting, and they have come to associate their popularity with how many likes they get on social media. And if, they're not, if they post something and they don't get a lot of likes, for them, that becomes like a self-esteem issue. And so and like in the old days, you know, the popular girls, you knew who they were, yeah. right? But now the popular girls are the ones who get a lot of likes. And so then the girls that don't get a lot of likes, it's like, well, I'm just sort of at the bottom of the social barrel here. Many boys have gaming obsessions that lead them to forego interest in school or extracurricular activities. And they regulate it a couple of different ways. They either try to regulate the time or they try to regulate the location or they try to regulate what they're exposing them to. And this is the, the content. And so these are the three ways that, that parents in my generation are trying to figure this out. And these are the three kind of things that we've come up with right now as to how we're going to handle this. And it's, it's very hard. There was a very interesting article um, that, was on, uh, that was circulating a couple of weeks ago that I found very insightful. It was called The Tech Industry's Psychological Warfare on Your Kids. And it summarized a lot of the recent research that's emerging in this area. And it's a popular level article. If you want to go look for it, this is the URL. But I thought this, this quote in particular just sort of summarized the whole problem. Kids spend 
countless hours in social media and video game environments in pursuit of likes, quote unquote friends, game points, levels, because it's stimulating. They believe that this makes them happy and successful. They find it easier than doing the difficult but developmentally important activities of childhood. This is the whole problem in a nutshell, is that we have certain activities that we need to do as children, teenagers, and young adults. They don't know how to have social interaction with adults. They don't know how to work hard. They don't be, they, and, and we have, we, my generation has done this. We have conditioned them and made it okay. And then we put them down. My daughter Emily and I have had these conversations. She's just like, I just get so tired of your generation telling my generation how we're ruining the world. And I said, I said, well, okay, but let's look at some data here. The fact is, is that there's, a, there's things that you guys don't know how to do. And that is ruining the world. And she's like, but that's not my fault. And I said, you're right. It's my generation's fault. And so we have to, I think, start having a different conversation. I actually think in the next five to 10 years, the society, I hope to God, is gonna shift. And doing, giving children devices is gonna be like letting your children smoke. Because we are ruining their childhoods and we're ruining their brain development and their social and psychological development. And we think, because my generation has just kind of been caught off guard by this in our parenting, we think that doing regulating is gonna work. So if you ask a child, like, what are you doing on their iPad? You know, it's like, I'm sure they're not gonna say things like, oh, I'm Skyping my grandma. I'm memorizing my times tables. I'm memorizing the book of Ephesians. You know, because we have these lofty ideas of what we think technology can do. And can it do all those things? Yes. Can it increase connection? Yes. There is that potential there. But how do we actually use it? What are we actually doing? Very porn, yes. Looking, watching movies, gaming. Yeah, just looking, surfing. And so is there, we have good intentions when we give these things as gifts to our children and we think of all these beautiful um, hopes, wishes, and dreams of what we're going to do with this technology. But my question is, is what do we actually do? Like, how does that actually show up? And what do we exchange for that? I call this counterfeit social development. It's, it is social development, but it's a counterfeit social development where we condition people. It's conditioning. It's what I call programming, where we're texting 100 times a day. Like, how often is that like every hour? Like, what does that even start to average out to? Now, texting is useful if I have to get a ride or if I'm got to cancel an appointment for coffee with my friend, but it's almost to the point where I'm annoyed if someone calls me, right? You text first to tell them that you're going to call them. Exactly. Uh, and in a text message, no one can hear your voice. So if you say, I'm great, the person on the other end just believes it. But they might be crying as they type, I am great. So texting allows us to mask our real feelings and what's really going on. This is counterfeit social development. Well, it's okay for us who haven't grown up in the age of social media. We know what we're doing. 
because we've lived in the real world more. I didn't get a cell phone until I was 24. I don't think I really turned it on until I was 30. You remember the days you didn't really even turn on your cell phone? You just sort of had this thing. Yeah. I, I remember buying it at Radio Shack. It had 20 minutes that I could use it. And I was like, woo, you know? And it was such a big like decision for my husband and I, like one of our big purchases after we got married. But we, even then, we'd already been married about four years before we went to Radio Shack and bought this brick, you know? And then we never really turned it on. It didn't do very much. You had to pull up yeah. the antenna and flip it down, and then you're holding it like this. I mean, it was expensive. Yeah. <laughs> but see, we have had all the proper social development. So when we do these things, we know what we're doing on some level. But our, our children don't. They haven't had that. And friends aren't actually people that we know. <laughs> they are people that maybe I may have not even met in real life. It's, <laughs> here's a nice summary, that's stupid. Yes, this is, that's not friendship. Yeah. What is that? For a friend is somebody that I am like investing in and I am showing up for and I bring them meals when they're sick and I, I pray for them in my small group and I, you know, this is what friendship means. Yeah, or at least calling, or that I have like a real relationship with them. It, we, we have different expectations now, but then we gripe about the emerging generation being so weak and snowflakes and cupcakes, and we, we call them all these names, but my generation has done, is partly responsible for that. And so I'm trying to figure out how do I wrestle with this? Because this feels like a train that is not bearing, this is a tree that's not bearing good fruit. And we're trying to, it, there's the potential, but we don't show up very well. So it can have redemptive qualities, but I don't think that children are able to just differentiate. So here's my, my thought, is that using a mobile device requires great discernment, okay? Children don't have terrific discernment yet. That's not their problem. That's not their fault. They're developmentally, that's where they are. But we give them this thing that's like a functional loaded gun for their soul. And we turn it over to them. And then we try to regulate it to death. And regulation, I don't think, I'm starting to believe doesn't actually work in most situations. This, this week I'm at lunch with a whole bunch of educators in, that teach college as part of my job. And one of the gals says, my cousin is a resident director. She has, part of her job is to help roommates when they have disputes to figure out how to fix their disputes. Well, she says this year's freshman class, they literally do not know how to talk to each other. She says it's not, she says on more than one occasion, she walks into the room, the two girls are sitting on their beds texting with each other, trying to work out their argument. They don't know how to resolve conflict. So there was value to me as I've been reflecting on this recently, that if I had an argument with a friend when I was in high school, there was value in trying to figure out, like getting to the end of that argument, to getting to a resolution, as hard as that conversation was, it taught me that resolution was possible. 
I can totally see that happening because they just, they only know how to text with each other. And if there's an argument, it's really easy for one of them just to opt out and never resolve it. So they don't know how to resolve anything. I'm thinking, how are these people going to be married? So at the same lunch, another one of my colleagues pipes up and says, I was teaching a class last week in Georgia. On the third day of the class, three students called in. They needed a mental health day because there was too much lecturing. And I'm like, I'm laughing. I'm like, this is, but this is why my generation calls them snowflakes. And, and this is what I told Emily. I said, this is not without warrant, but this is partly our fault. And so we need to have some responsibility in my generation to what we've created and not just call them names for how it's the fruit of how it's showing up. And so I thought this was interesting. This is a, 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 another survey of teenagers uh, asking them what would they do if they didn't have a smartphone for a week. 61% said they couldn't last that long without it. Uh, 44% said they would, they would maybe endure if you give them $100. 19% said they would need more than $500. So this is what, what I'm noticing in my own life is that mobile devices hijack what I call my little moments, my little free moments. Those little moments when I should be making small talk with people. You know, I'm at my office before a meeting, and we have like two or three minutes before we're waiting for the meeting to start. And we're all sitting there on our mobile phones. That's the time when I could be asking my coworker like, hey, how's your mother? How's her cancer treatment going? What's happening there? What's happening with your son? How's he adjusting to college? But my mobile devices have, have hijacked those little moments of connection. And if I believe that I've been created for connection, if I have a theological belief, I've been created for connection, this is God's hopes and dreams for me. His supernatural destiny for me is connection. I'm living in my truest identity when I am connected but I'm allowing my little moments to be hijacked, I'm kind of out of alignment with my own worldview. Can, can you see that? Mm-hmm. And what am I doing at the table with my kids? And you know, all these little moments that we just allow to kind of slip through our fingers. I have such conviction about this, but it's really because mobile devices, I think really kind of started right about Right, rising up in our culture, right about the same time as my husband lost his job about nine years ago. And so we're still like fairly new in this discovery. And now we're starting to see the fruit of it. And I'm just trying to say like, okay, let's step back here for a minute and see where we're going. Do we really want to go there? And as a distinctly Christian culture, what do we want to be, how do we want to be living? What do we want our children to look like? In another free moments, I like the show Seinfeld. If, if Seinfeld was made today, Kramer would never come over. He would just send a text. Because right. the whole premise of his silly character right. is the pop-in, right? He just comes in. <laughs> right? But if that show was made today... He wouldn't, he would just be sending a text message because I'm an introvert. I'm in my apartment. I like isolation, right? But what makes the show funny is that you have these four people sitting around basically connecting all the time, doing nothing, 
right? And so if you think about where we've come even since this show, you know, that, that if that was people in their 30s today, like what would that look like? How would that be different? It, 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 and the results of all of this, the fruit, I think, is that we're all living separately under the same roof. We, we have our own Netflix accounts. We have our own social media accounts. We're on our own devices. We're all living under the same roof. So geographically, yeah, I guess we're a family, but we're not emotionally connected to each other because we don't know how to talk to each other. And I'm starting to see like, okay, there's some value in even having an argument together because in the real world, someday you're gonna have a difficult boss that you need to know how to resolve a conflict with. You're gonna have a difficult coworker that you struggle with. You can't just press an unfriend button and be done with it. You know, that doesn't work. There's a lack of resilience, a lack of problem solving ability that I'm noticing in the emerging generation as I teach them. They, they need this, the, my syllabus for the courses that I write, it's becoming 30 pages long because they need to have everything spelled out. When I first started teaching, I just sort of stood up there on the first day of class. I said, these are the textbooks. There will be exams. Start taking notes. And now that if everything isn't just exactly spelled out, they don't know what to do. And they have so much anxiety about it. And if you start looking at the statistics of how of the increased anxiety and depression that people get as a result of using mobile devices and how it correlates with the rise in the last nine years since mobile devices have become more prevalent, you know, there's some conversations to have there, whether it's causation or just incidental, but there's a rising amount of data that it's causation, that there is a close connection between the amount that you are using mobile devices and so interacting on social media connected to anxiety and depression. The lack of ability to have face-to-face -face communication, conflict resolution, or social manners. I've already mentioned those. So this, the purpose of this is not to like throw like this condemnation on my daughter's generation. It's to, to stand back in my generation and just to say, okay, we've been in this now for about nine years. Let's evaluate the fruit of this. Where are we heading? And is this consistent with the kind of Christian culture that we want to be inculcating in our children? Do we need to make some shifts? Can we at least start to ask some different questions instead of just going along with things? We, I don't see a lot of conversation yet happening in our culture to evaluate this. There's some that's starting to happen, but we need more. And that's why I felt like even though I'm in process with all of this, I just at least want to throw out some things and say, like, here's what I'm noticing. You know, <laughs> here's some fruit that I'm like, I'm kind of disturbed about this. You know, um, the more fruit is the lack of ability to read or summarize complex ideas. I see this so much in the students that I teach. They do not know how to take a passage of anything and really write a summary of the big idea because they've been so programmed and conditioned to read headlines and to read snippets that they don't, they don't know how to summarize things. And that's an, it's a developmental ability that has been lost or is being lost. They lack the ability to have sustained attention spans and process complex information. We're, we struggle with this all the time at the ministry that I work with. Like 10, 20 years ago when I first started working there, we would make one-hour videos. Now it's like, okay, 
I want you to explain to me the, po the problem of evil in three minutes. And it's ridiculous because you can't, you can't break down such complex ideas in that short amount of time. But then there's the, well, how much do we give into the culture and what they need and the, their, their perceived needs versus their actual needs, right? This is the, 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 the dilemma that we are constantly in as uh, a ministry. They this is a big one, is that the emerging generation lacks the ability to have a quiet mind. They need to always have noise happening in the background. Well, we've conditioned them this way. When I see children at Costco in the cart with an iPad, I want to run up to the parents and say, what are you doing? Think about it, because there's value in the child just looking around. There's value in the parent talking to the child. There's value in the conversation. They don't need to be entertained all the time. And so the long 2,000-year discipline of spiritual formation for us as Christians is to have a quiet mind so we can hear the Lord. But we're so afraid to have a quiet mind now that we don't know how to hear the voice of the Lord. So what does that begin to look like? And just the, the constant noise. The world is noisy as it is. But what are we doing as a Christian culture to create quietness, even in our children, and to help them see the value of quietness? This is a long, historic Christian practice. of This is how you grow up in the Lord, is you have a quiet mind, you read the scriptures, you pray, and you listen. But we don't do that anymore. Everything is programmed to keep our minds busy and active and on to the next thing. We get in the car, we turn on the radio, you know, we get in the grocery store, we give the kid an iPad, we go to the restaurant. They have like these little kiosks now that you could pay $2 and have the kid entertained. Everywhere you go is noise. So you never have the, the developmental skills of how do I have a, a conversation? What does that look like? Another huge problem I see is low biblical literacy. It's a beautiful thing to have so many translations on my mobile phone, but what I'm noticing in the emerging generation is that they, haven't, they don't have a Bible that they've made their own. When I used to teach the high school group here, one of my requirements was when you show up, you have to have a Bible. Because when I was in high school, man, that thing became my friend. I had all my favorite passages that I would turn to for encouragement on difficult days little notes of the sermon notes and then I would look back on them and I would think about oh that was such a fun sermon I heard at Hume Lake I remember that and I would have that memory of that passage and how that spoke to me in that time and then I would look back and I would remember like how much I had grown but I've noticed that that, that the emerging generation they're not friends with their Bibles they don't know how to find stuff they don't know where it's at there's a big concern that I have because I counsel now young people and so many of them in, in prayer ministry, I counsel these, these young people, 19, 20, 21 years old, and they're all involved in lifestyle choices that are totally against their worldview, but they've never read the Bible enough to know they shouldn't be engaging in those lifestyle choices. But here's the problem, and most of you already intuitively know this, is that most parents don't want to do much about this problem. It's hard. Can we just all agree that this is hard? We try to regulate it. 
We try to regulate the location, the time exposure, the content. But let's be honest, it's a losing battle. Let's just, let's just have a moment of honesty and clarity about how we're losing. And parents, many parents are just as addicted as their kids. And this has been the moment of like deep conviction for myself because I earn a living. I have to be on a screen all day. Here's some statistics about parents. 51% of parents are on social media for personal and work purposes combined. 51%, eight hours or more a day. And that's the thing that I'm struggling with too is that I'm on my screen all day for work. I have to be. But then, it, then I started to think like, okay, well, what adjustments do I need to make when I'm not at work? And that's, that's the big question that I'm wrestling with. Some suggestions. First, more frank opinions. Because <laughs> I just couldn't get enough. Because my head was exploding the whole time I'm putting this lesson together. I'm like, wow, this is so much conviction. And um, I am growing increasingly skeptical that controlling our children's exposure, I, I, I don't think that actually works. Because I think my husband and I have been pretty on it and still things get by us. The, and I already kind of touched on this, is that children lack discernment. I look at this as being a loaded gun for a child's soul. You're giving them a loaded gun that they don't know how to manage. And then we expect them to practice discernment that they don't have. There's a reason why we don't allow 13-year-olds to drive cars. Because they don't have the wisdom and discernment to know how to use a deadly vehicle, a potentially deadly weapon. So the issue of porn, now we're going to have a very uncomfortable conversation, but I had yet another conversation with a young man this week, and almost all the guys that I counsel in prior ministry start looking at porn when they're 12. Almost all all of them, 12, 13, and these parents think they're regulating this. And I'm here to tell you, you're not. You're not regulating it. You think you are, but you're not. It's pervasive. And that's why I call this a deadly weapon for your child's soul and for our soul. This has so much potential for damage. And then once you're in it, it's hard. For those guys to get free. And then I think about my daughters. That the, the, the statistic. The, the statistic probability that my daughters will marry porn addicts is high. How do I parent in that environment? To teach them the expectation that you should have for your future husband. Is that you're marrying into a situation where he's a porn addict. That's not like a, a, a conversation that gets me real excited. But this is a conversation we're not having in a very candid and frank way in the church as to how bad this is, how pervasive it is. But I'm here to tell you, it is pervasive. And so going back to our big picture questions is what is the kind of culture that we as Christians want to cultivate in our church? How are Christian children going to be different? And almost universally, that is the issue is I don't want my child to feel, feel left out. Their friends are playing these games. Their friends are on social media. And this is the problem. And, and so 
I'm asking this, this very hard question because it's, I have also fallen into this trap of this way of thinking. And I think that in my parents' generation, they were much more comfortable with just saying to their children, you're a Christian child. You're not watching that. And that was the end of the conversation. And you didn't, there wasn't a big long discussion of, as a parent, like here are my 10 reasons that I'm going to persuade you to child of why you're not going to watch this movie or play this game. You know, I went to my mother. I said, can I go watch this movie? She said, no. And I said, okay. And then we move forward. And, and that saying, because I said so was a perfectly acceptable answer. I don't know. My, my mother was pretty comfortable with saying, I don't care what so-and-so is doing. I'm not their parent. I am responsible for you. And if they jumped off a cliff, (laughs) would you do that too? (laughs) Yeah. But we need to, I think in my generation, we need to grow up a little bit as parents and to say, this is not okay. And I don't really care what other people are doing. This is how it's going to be, and this is wise, because I don't want you to miss out on real life. This is all just a very hard conversation. I hope you hear me when I say, like, I'm in this too. Like, this isn't a conversation about condemnation. This is a conversation about me noticing. Like, here's what I am noticing. And, and I think that we have to be intentional about creating environments with our children and grandchildren that are screen-free. And they're not going to like say, oh, thank you for loving me so much. But they are going to remember, you know, like, oh, I remember going over to my grandma's and we would bake this together or we would do these things together because you have to believe. Okay, back to our theology lesson at the beginning. What are we created for? Connection. If we truly believe that we are created for connection, we will know that doing those activities will meet a deep longing in that child's heart that they might not be able to articulate right then. But that you are doing the right thing because you are helping to orient their soul to the way that God created them to be. And this isn't about um, being legalistic and, and being no fun. It's about creating fun in a way that you were designed to experience fun by the father from the beginning. Now, can we use technology to create connections? Sure, there is that potential, but we have to be like massively intentional about it, don't we? You know, like let's have Skype, let's do a Skype call with the grandparents. We always do that on our birthdays and Christmas with my husband's parents up in Oregon and his, his sister and their kids and seeing the cousins on the, 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 the video call and everything. We do those things. The intentionality has to be there. It's, and it's hard. Um, some practical ideas. These are some that I read from uh, my friend Arlene Pelicane. She's an old college friend of mine, has a book uh, for parents called Growing Up Social. And these are some ideas that I got from her. I wanted to interview her for the class on this lesson, but um, she's having like this horrible medical problem with her voice and she's not doing any more interviews right now. But um, if you want to explore these things more. Her book, Growing Up Social, is a good resource, resource for parents. A weekly technology Sabbath with children. 
of having a day of no screen so that they that becomes part of their rhythm of their life. Um, allowing your child to be bored. Yeah. I am a huge advocate for boredom because their brain will eventually figure it out. They might stare at the wall or stare at the ceiling for a couple of days, but their brain will eventually start functioning and it will figure it out. And so children, I just believe that there is an innate God-given design in us that we need quiet. And if we don't ever teach our child how to be quiet, they, they won't teach themselves. And so they need that. Allow boredom. Allow quiet. Even if it takes several days for them to detox from the, the uh, device. Teaching children basic social skills. These are hidden social deficits. Teaching your child how to... Um, interact with adults, how to introduce themselves, how to receive an introduction, how to do these basic social skills that are being lost in our culture. Less screen time, more active time. Uh, that's a big one that the American Pediatric Association has been talking about. And I added to that more face-to-face -face interaction, more face-to-face -face interaction, more table conversation. I might even be an advocate for a little bit more arguing because <laughs> little, little friendly arguing because uh, there, will, there, there will be uh, sinners in your future. Yes. Here's the American Pediatric Recommendations for Screen Time. I personally don't like any of these, but uh, except maybe the 18 months one. No screens, uh, 18 months to two years, limit screen time, um, two to five years an hour a day, six or older. I feel like I don't even understand why children are on screens. I'm to that point. I'm that person. I've become that person. <laughs> so for us as adults, just a few ideas is using technology to cultivate real world relationships and help you in Oikos ministry. I use my phone a lot in my Oikos ministry, texting with people, checking in, how are you doing? But then I set up a meeting. Let's get up, let's get together for coffee. Let's Let's, uh, I want to check in with you and see what's happening. So technology is a, a great way for me to do ministry, but it, I fold that into real FaceTime discussion. It's not a substitute for that. Um, intentional face-to-face, -face, that should be communication with children, grandchildren, and then just asking the question, what can you do to re reduce your interaction with screens? And this is the challenge I said earlier of, in my job, I'm on a screen all the time. And so this is really the question I'm wrestling with is how can I even reduce it beyond that? You know, when I'm at home and what am I doing? And because and, I use screens in ministry and I, I mean, I, just everything I do is on screens. So this is the conversation the Lord and I are in right now. So I, I hope that the, the spirit is coming through here of like, this is a tough issue and this is the world that we live in. But to start to ask some questions, are we generating a distinctly Christian culture that is, assumes connection and, and has connection as a vital piece of who we are and quietness and allows for quietness in our everyday life so that the Lord has a space to speak to us, his people, and how are we teaching our children how to listen?